Good people, you are now listening to the A to Knee podcast. I am your humble and gracious host, Knee, for however long these proceedings decide to go on for. And today I have a very special guest, the wonderful, the amazing, the very, very lovely Miss Jessica herself, Karis. Very high praise. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about the diaspora, diaspora tensions. Black people are, we're global. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't ask to be, but we are global. Um, as a result of the legacy of the Arab slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism, and post-colonial migration. So we've ended up all over the gaff. North America, South America, mainland Europe, Britain, wherever wherever there's land on this planet, you'll find black people. We're everywhere. (laughs) So I wanted to kind of speak on... The fact that every now and then, uh, particularly in social spaces, um, especially in the online era, we'll see the tensions between black ethnic groups erupt in some way, shape or form. Um, Mm -hmm. Whether it's through jokes or something distasteful or it it always manifests itself some way, somehow. Uh, People call it diaspora wars. Yeah people downplay it people will say things like oh well we're fucking each other any we're, we're all having sex with each other anyway so yeah. it doesn't really matter but i feel like particularly i think particularly in the americas at the moment there is a big rift and the rift is getting even bigger um and i think you know we should sort of sit down with each other and have mm-hmm. i guess what are uncomfortable conversations to sort of because well because it's my understanding and my belief that we are all that we've got. Yeah. So if we don't, you know, take the time to sit, take the time out to sit down, and listen to each other, you know, we're going to end up in a worse position than we're already in. Okay. We can all be easily offended. And we come at these things with our particular sensibilities or our particular perspectives and backgrounds, but we don't always listen to each other. And I wanted to have this discussion with uh, Karis in particular because, well, um, well, Karis is actually, Karis actually sits you, you sit in a lot of intersections don't you because you're do you want to break down your your um, ethnic and national identities um sure I'll, or at least I'll try um so um my parents are Jamaican I'm a uh, West Indian um I was born and mostly raised in Bermuda um and I've spent the last uh eight years living in the UK six of which um have been in London so I am a British West Indian, I guess, on paper, um, but I didn't grow up in the UK. I grew up predominantly in the Caribbean. So kind of uh, a mix of, of different things, I guess, in terms of identity. Um, I spent a fair amount of time in the United States as well, um, I guess, hence the accent. So um, it's allowed me to some degree to experience different perspectives on things, um, and see, I guess, different ideas of where things come from. Um, yeah. Cool, cool. So talking about the diaspora, what the diaspora is. So the diaspora is essentially um, a space outside of someone's homeland where people from that homeland exist. And for diasporans, I guess the we're offered a very unique experience in the fact that we are able to live amongst mm-hmm. 
black people that we would you know not see if we were in our home nations people from the other side of the world in comparison to ourselves um infighting is nothing new it's mm-hmm. nothing special um but it's something that i think should be addressed i think one thing that really harms us is sort of looking back at the past and expecting the same understanding that we have today yeah. Yeah. i think people mythologize about um medieval africa in a way that is um it lacks nuance i feel like there's this this idea that of, of a communal africa uh almost a a black utopia in a sense um yeah and therefore then that creates this dichotomy of the betrayed and the betrayer so yeah because we have like 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 the idea of a race traitor you know is, is much more of a, a modern construct in the here and now where we re- we live in societies that are where we're racialized as black and there are consequences of being racialized as black um not just obviously in medieval africa people would have had different ways of delineating themselves from other people from other ethnic groups from other kingdoms xyz xyz yeah but i think we kind of sometimes we 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 throw this flat blackness backwards towards medieval africa and it then influence our perception of people that come from different uh, ethnic backgrounds today so for example um if i take someone like mansa musa uh mansa musa was a, a, a the king um king of um king of mali the mali empire um you know he he sold malians into the slave trade into the um arab slave trade is it right for me to look back at someone like that and s- consider them a race traitor in a situation where their context doesn't have the same racial understanding of identity that i have today i don't like i can't look at someone like that the same way i'd look at maybe like i don't know a stacy dash or a candice owens like that doesn't though that doesn't compute for me because i don't think it's the same context um it takes away a lot of the you know just general human experiences that we have you know we don't you're not always friendly with your neighbors um you know feudal systems often create situations where there are the haves and the have-nots so it's just it's one of those things but i think with black people sometimes we view ourselves as especially deficient so whenever we look back in history and we see some sort of compliance with what then became the system of white supremacy was like ah see black people are always doing it's like it's almost like the black on black crime narrative it's this this fallacy that dehumanizes us even further because like you could replace the idea of black on black crime with anything else so it's like if you hurt each other then why should outsiders feel a way about hurting you it's like if you replace it with i don't know like dogs are oh, two dobermans killed each other um does that give you know people the right to shoot dogs no it's 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 a, it's a very ridiculous thing that happens um but yeah so you have that kind of like that dichotomy of the betrayed and the betrayer um that then you know sort of it sometimes manifests in like in 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 modern day communications between those two peoples um and you know it's interesting because like i said these these ideas of identity that we have now aren't necessarily the ideas that we had you know a thousand years ago so um when so so for me i feel like while there has been this general understanding of we are all black blackness's meaning 
it shifts a lot depending on the circumstance it can be cultural it can be racial it can be political and i think we're not always holding those ideas up at the same time when we say the word black so you know we have the they have this idea of you know so i think that i so it's not necessarily a unifier in the way that we expect it to be um like you know it's the the long standing use of these words is much more about categorization you know categorizing someone as negro as black as as, as how it's it's much more about categorization for the sake of upholding the white supremacist system it's not hasn't for the entirety of the use of these terms in the broader broader sense it hasn't been about a united identity um but sometimes it's talked about in that flat sense in this flat blackness i think because a lot of the time we get this idea of a flat whiteness which is of course again a fallacy because and you think that'll be obvious because don't you don't have to look any further than two world wars and thousands of years of infighting between all these different types of white even england england used to be all these small kingdoms lancashire yorkshire like um cumbria like all these places they used to fight each other a lot they still do like if you just even if you look at the not too long ago the way the english treat the irish these ideas of flat racial categories it's interesting the way we view them as if they've always existed in this in the fashion that they exist today which of course is incorrect um and i think and I, during my read in my in my sort of reading I, I think i came across this essay by uh jane nardell um and it talks about how like the the sort of the creation of uh, you know, the united sort of liberation movements that we've had in the past 200 years. So at the beginning of the 20th century, um, that's where you see names like Afro-Latino, Afro-American, Afro-Caribbean will come more into conscious thought and use, popular use. Um, and, you know, we have the negritude movement, but then you have the Pan-African movement. And essentially it's a coming together because we share in this oppression by this white, white supremacist capitalist system but it doesn't necessarily deal with the cultural differences between us um and it's interesting because th- and again i think like that, that mythologizing about uh, medieval africa it kind of influences how we sort of perceive each other i think that you know these are obviously very general terms but um you know you have the from from a uh, African American and or West Indian standpoint, you have the idea of the medieval African traitor, maybe who, who you know, who threw you into slavery, um, and is not to be trusted. Um, and then on the other side, you have uh, and and you and you and you sort of perceive these people as, and then on top of that, when you come into contact with these people and you feel a rejection from what essentially are your. Um, uh, your fourth the, the descent the descendants the direct descendants of your forefathers no that that's probably sounds a bit i don't mean it to sound like that but those are the words i'll use um and you feel that rejection it kind of it it causes you to, to harbor this this um you know attention hatred whatever whatever and on the flip side of that you have um and, and again that, that that those beliefs are fallacies essentially because they don't give the real nuance into things like coercion uh, or the just the geopolitical situations in those African or in on the Guinea coast in particular but in in the, those parts of Africa at that time um and then you have the the, the 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 African who sort of maybe believes that he has been able to stay more culturally uh, um 
intact and stay truer to himself whereas the the people that were taken have been shifted and molded into this commodity by the white man um and again this is a fallacy because all you need to do is look at the um map of africa see all the straight lines and you would understand that the idea of remaining culturally whole is, is a, it's a fallacy so um and then that that causes you to look at the these people that were taken in a particular way you you, you um you maybe see them as a a representation of I guess that the, the the fact that the white man was right, the white man was right to make these assumptions about you to tell you that you were you were crass, you were um, violent, you were unable to con- control yourself emotionally, physically, um, and I think this is especially because black cultures in the West are very much um, judged based on their youth culture, and you know the youth in the diaspora usually have. A particular set of ills that they're speaking of in in their in in their art, and as a result of that, um, that that's used as the barometer for the entirety of that black culture, and so therefore, that's used as this yardstick to show that you know these people are violent, these people are this, these people are that. Um, they lack you know they lack morality, they lack whatever whatever. But it's it's a reflection of the depravity that the people have experienced more often more often than not so then once you take that that once you take that context out of it and you just portray it as the personification or manifestation of these people's innate violence that then creates this very you know this thing of the, the, where you fear your reflection you know um uh you know you're afraid that this is what you'll become if you don't I guess gatekeep this, this um, the, these um, or if you don't, if you don't withdraw yourself from these people, so it's this very messed up entanglement of different psychological things that are happening and taking place. Um, even again from the other side, another perspective is the idea of the primitive nature of where you come from. Um, this 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 continual projection of an africa that is is lacking because it's, 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 it's very interesting to think about it because like people it, 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 people in terms of logistically africa props up a lot of the industries um that the west loves you know things like the confectionery industry um you know gold diamonds uh the beauty industry like we create a lot of the products that are fundamental for these industries so there's clearly an abundance of resources within the context of our of our lands but they make they make it also seem like a, a place of lacking a place of you know the, the 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 picture of africa in most people's heads is the child with the uh, bloated belly and the fly on their face you know it's it's this weird contradictory thing of this place where we go and we take all the stuff that we need and it has everything that we need but at the same time it's this place that's primitive it's lacking the people have no cult that the, their social their societies are lesser than ours they're unable to control themselves they're they're corrupt they're innately corrupt and again this removes the context of the things that were done to these nations for centuries to make sure that they were this way um and the effect that it has on the way we as black people perceive each other whether we're west indian african-american uh black british uh or from the continent itself like the way we perceive ourselves is all entangled within these um situations yeah that is it's a very good breakdown, very good summary. Um, agreed. 
I guess now that I've finished my sort of historical ramblings, we can sort of go into like the personal ways this has affected us. Um, so in terms of, for me, I always did feel estranged from uh, other black groups in the UK. So West Indians, because that's pretty much the only other black group here. Um, I did always feel estranged. Um, I always felt like I didn't fit into black culture in general because I didn't fit into West Indian culture. Um, obviously at the time I didn't, no, that's what it. I don't, at the time, I didn't know that's what it was, but that's kind of what it was. Um, thinking back on it, um, and you know, because like if particularly in my adolescence, I made concerted efforts to try and make sure that I was friendly with other black people that you know weren't my blood family. So I did. Try, I, there wasn't like I remember trying, but it, but it didn't necessarily always come off into creating you know like these um, long-standing friendships. In some some cases, it did. Some cases, it didn't. So I guess um, I could start by asking you, like, what was your relationship with your African origin, I guess? Um, How did you, how were you made to feel or what was your perception of the fact that your ancestors originated from Africa? Like, what was, what were the sort of things that you were told? Sure. Um, So in Bermuda, um, you know, growing up in a Jamaican household, um, I would say that my introduction and my exposure to Africa, uh, was always very positive. Um, so there was never any kind of, um, sort of negative stereotypes that were, um, I guess, influenced or, you know, shared in the home, um, or even sort of at a community level at school, um, you know, things like that. There's a certain level of uh, reverence, I think, um, within at least the Caribbean communities that I uh, grew up in, um, you know, when it comes to Africa. But what I will say is that it is definitely more so from a heritage perspective than from a modern unity kind of perspective. Um you know, so just to break that down, it meant that we were at home, you know, very much educated about African history, um, whether that be East or West, um, you know, Central Africa, uh, South Africa, um, very much sort of brought up to speed as far as um, um, early Pan-African uh, leaders, um, early Pan-African ideals and ideologies, But in terms of the day-to-day exposure or encouragement that we would have had um, around African people in our day-to-day lives, um, that wasn't focused on as much. There was just this very strong kind of inculcation, if you will, to uh, respect and appreciate where we've come from. no kind of leaning in either direction around how to interact with Africans that we might meet um, now in the present era, um, but absolutely to adore where we've come from. You know, my cousins have um, have African names, um, you know, from different countries, and uh, we always had African art in the home. Um, you know, very much centered around like African dance. When I went to dance school. Uh, there's just, there was never, for me at least, um, this idea of seeing myself as as better than, um, which I'm 
hearing from you know some people in the the British Black experience is something that they encountered um, quite often. You know, usually in an academic setting. Yeah, it's interesting because um, in my previous episode, I spoke with my dad. When I asked him about, you know, the experience of meeting different types of black people for the first time, he was like, yeah, um, you know, West Indians would think they were better than Africans. And for me, it was very surprising to to hear that. And I was, I'm, I'm kind of interested. I want to speak to more West Indian elders uh, in terms of like how it felt from the other side, because obviously my dad's perspective is very much based on his personal experience. But when I was asking him about, you know, the sort of the creation of the black community in the 60s, he was like, well, you know, you expected a Nigerian to be a fraudster. You expected a Jamaican to be very aggressive. So you sort of just, you would stick to what you knew. And for me, it was like, it's kind of like, it sort of epitomized that sort of what I see as the dropping of the ball in terms of, particularly in black Britain, in terms of, you know, take seizing the, seizing the moment to create a, a unified community within a diaspora and build a building from there and instead you know sticking to what's familiar and, and, and i mean i'm not to not to like um to to be talked disparagingly about that generation because obviously they had a lot of things to deal with but for me if like just just looking at on a, a, a political community standpoint it would make a lot more sense if we saw each other as allies and people that we could collaborate with rather than, okay, cool, because of stereotypical beliefs or one or two, one or two personal interactions, I might not give, you know, the benefit of the doubt or particular level of grace to the rest of this community. And, you know, considering how economically challenged we are in this country, like it, it, that, that doesn't make any sense to me personally. But again, I'm probably speaking from a position of hindsight and, you know. I think part of the reason why... Um pan-African ideologies and this whole idea of like a collective unity thing. I think part of the reason why that was so successful, um, you know, and took off the way that it did was because it was an era in which numbers really drove campaigns and really drove, um, you know, ideas, concepts, um, you know, lifestyles, um, you know, any kind of uh, movement was driven exclusively by numbers. And so people were a lot more willing to swallow their pride and kind of swallow any grudges that they held, um, you know, any kind of tension or whatever the case may be, because they knew if we can get the numbers together, we can pass this. If we can get the numbers together, you know, this march will make more noise or whatever the case may be. Whereas I feel like now, um, you know, in generations since then, there are other ways to make impact. And so more people are more comfortable with, no, I'm going to focus on my group and the the ills that we're facing specifically and, you know, overcome our trials first, you know, or, you know, we're going to address our issues, um, you know, between groups, because I know that I can, you know, progress my cause or whatever the case may be and um, address tension at the same time. Whereas I don't think you could really do that um, when that early Pan-African movement began. So one thing that I always picked up on growing up was the this overarching idea that a West Indian was a mixed person, like a person of mixed heritage. Um, and I think it was always difficult for me to reconcile that because the majority of West Indians I met were probably Jamaican. I think my mum had one work colleague who was a close friend uh, who is from Barbados, my auntie Katty actually. Um, and she was quite light. Um, but I did at the time I didn't make 
the connection that her lightness could be because she might have some other admixture or ancestry um, in somewhere in a, within her family. But I remember, I remember people used the, would use the phrase because um, people would people would say Jamaican when they meant West Indian, but they would just say Jamaican as like a, a to engulf all of the West Indies. So people would say, "Oh, Jamaicans are mix up." Um, so there was this like sort of this overarching idea that a West Indian was a mixed individual. Um, and for me, yeah, it was always difficult to reconcile because when I would meet people from, particularly when I meet Jamaicans, for example, um, I'm thinking, you know, this person just looks like me. They don't look extremely different to the point of where I'm like, the, the yeah, there, there is no visible difference for me to think, oh, you might have this admixture. So it was always interesting to me whenever someone would basically say, Oh, I have a an Indian grandma or something, something, and you know these these things could have been true. That not not to say they were lying, but in terms of visible recognition of these things, like it was, and I think because of that, I would always project. I would always project this idea of, to me, it came off as them sort of rejecting Africanness, rejecting blackness, wanting to make themselves feel other than than what well, I guess what, what I would consider myself African, so different from us. And it was always interesting to me because I'm like. Obviously, that that's wrong for me to do. Like it was, it's wrong for me to automatically assume someone has a negative, um, negative relationship with their identity. But I guess that's just kind of always how it came off. Whenever some what, the the whole because the narrative was always people are mixed, people are mixed. Um, but when I'm seeing someone, and you know, I'm like the majority of people I'm seeing, you just look like me. You you look like you could be my cousin. You look like you could be like you know. It's not. I'm not seeing this you know, this looser hair or this, these things that people would allude to, I wouldn't really see it. I, I, I have seen it like now in my twenties, um, now that I've seen people from uh, different islands. Um, but I remember when I was young, seeing these people, um, particularly from Jamaica and the way they would use the term Jamaica to, to people, people would use the term Jamaica to encapsulate the entire Caribbean. And I would just never see this thing that they were pointing towards, like, oh, I am mixed with something else. And I'm just like, so for me, I always I projected and always made it seem as if it was a thing of where they were running away from blackness or rejecting blackness, which again is wrong. Um, but you know, it's interesting because like I feel like from what I um, the from the research, and then when I came into my twenties and I sort of did some reading and I found out that you know, Jamaica's a relatively monoracial country. Um, you know, the the average Jamaican is the the, the average Afro Jamaican is you know between like eighty percent black. 80% African so it was always very interesting to me to have these conversations and I think a lot of it was just the incorrect language people people were saying Jamaica but they didn't mean Jamaicans um, but I, that's something I remember clearly as a differentiator but this doesn't seem to really be the case like maybe in the UK where there's been a lot of intermarriage and that is correct J- Jamaica is predominantly um, monoracial there's as you said a number of ethnicities um, but the average um, Black Jamaican is 90 to 95% Black, um, and the vast majority of the population is Black. So, yeah, and and I agree, um, you know, that is definitely the case in comparison um, from sort of on-island demographics versus, um, you know, British Jamaicans in the UK. Um, that admixture is not seen to the same degree on-island versus in the UK. And the 
I guess, leaning towards always claiming that admixture is, in my opinion, just a legacy of colonialism. Um, it's, it's a legacy of white supremacy and the need to feel like um, there's something else going on. You know, you are black and other, you know, black and, um, you know, Taino, black and, and Syrian or black and Jewish, whatever the case may be. It's a need to be more than, um, in terms of, I, I wouldn't necessarily translate that to superiority, um, you know, in terms of comparing uh, ourselves to um, more monoracial Black people, specifically continental Africans. Um, but it's, a, it's an inadequacy thing um, that absolutely stems from, um, you know, unfortunately, those, those painful legacies. But you know, out of many one people, um, you know, the, the claiming of all these other ethnicities, it's something that I, you know, and many other Jamaicans absolutely feel that we have to let go of because genetically speaking, it's not true. You know, politically, um, historically, culturally, you could absolutely argue, um, you know, there's been significant mixing of cultures and of, you know, ideals and whatnot in the way that the modern day Jamaican lives, um, you know, and the, and the beliefs that they hold. But genetically speaking, it's not, it's not true. So I can understand why it would come across as, um, you know, like a hierarchy thing or like a, a need to, to distance, um, themselves from Africanness and, you know, perhaps, you know, there's definitely an element of that within that. Um, but the, the way that I've seen that rhetoric presented of being like, you know, oh, I'm this and I have this and my, my grandfather was also this. It is, um, you know, rooted in not necessarily feeling like their Blackness is sufficient, like it's adequate enough. Um, but at the same time, it's presented in this way of like um, having the best of both worlds, you know, or the best of multiple worlds. So the blackness is absolutely seen as a good thing. Um, it's just for some reason not seen as enough to be, you know, standalone good by itself, if that makes sense. I guess now we could go into stereotyping and ignorance. Um, I think for me, I'd been quite ignorant about a lot of west indian customs like for a, a long period of my life um well not that old so <laughs> but still relatively relatively long um and you know when i think about how i used to view certain things it's, it's quite interesting and i think it even though i i'm not someone i don't i've never you know openly insulted uh west indians i've never that's never been the type of person I've, i have um but i've definitely maybe harbored things under the surface in terms of like um for example with carnival you know i never really looked for the wider cultural context of carnival like i never even gave it that much of a i never even considered that there could be a context for me it was just a party it was just a party for west indians and and it's interesting i would i i would never go um when i was younger I have, I have been, but when I, when I was younger, I would never go because I sort of considered it as just like, a, this is a West Indians event. So I didn't want to like, I felt like I was encroaching on culture. Like I was like, you know, um, going somewhere where it wasn't really for me. 
Um, obviously, my, my mind's changed now, but that's kind of how I always grew up seeing it. Um, I never really looked at it as something that I should go to as a Ghanaian Brit. And but on top of that, I just you know I just saw it as a as like a, a big party. I didn't you know look into the the wider context of you know slave rebellion and 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 how it represented um, the you know emancipation in in a, in a big sense, and even in the British context, how it also represented where West Indian with West Indian British communities, you know, really sort of wanting to mark, put their stamp down as, as a form of resistance against the continual oppression pushed at them by the, you know, by the British society. So I never really gave it that that wider concept. And it's interesting because, you know, when I look at things like um, like Homo War, for example, I didn't necessarily know the, the, the historical context of Homo War, but I always knew it was, you know, something with a cultural context just because well partly maybe because it's my culture but just because just i don't know i just perceived it differently um and i guess that kind of does show my prejudice toward so it does show a prejudice towards um a west west indian cultures and and even even you know that carnival in general there are carnivals all over africa um but i never but i didn't really consider how I didn't really consider it as a state, uh, as, a, as a marking of that um, continuance of something else, um, or, or even just the context of it being created in a specific space for a specific reason. Um, and it's interesting, and it's even things like you know, like um, like whining, for example. As an outsider, I'd only ever seen it as like some sort of you know a you know a pre-sexual sort of. Uh, I guess almost like a mating call, um, because again, I think I'd only had it in the con- I'd only really ever looked at it in the context of like a nightclub situation, sort of or something like that. But uh, something you speaking to you was really good because it context gave me a lot of cultural context for things like whining. Um, so I think maybe if if you could break that down the same way you broke it down for me, it'll be useful for people that maybe haven't heard it from that perspective. I hope I can remember. <laughs> So essentially, um, you know, whining and similar dances in the Caribbean are competitive partner dances. And so it's more about um, a showcase of skill than it is about, um, you know, demonstrating any kind of attraction. Um, You know, I I think because I, especially on Twitter, have seen a lot of people throwing the whole, you know, well, would you whine with your brother? Would you whine with your father? And, you know, it's meant to be this, you know, aha moment of, you know, see, it is sexual. And, you know, it's, it's kind of baffling to me because there are a number of different things that, you know, people would consider in a similar light that they understand quite normally. Um... As, as being inappropriate to do with family, but, um, you know, still not something that's inherently sexual. Um, and yet when it comes to whining, that's somehow this completely foreign concept. Um, so for me, you know, one of the things that I like to compare, um, you know, whining to for people who don't get it is, you know, love duets, you know, when people, you know, sing songs that are about love, you know, a guy and a girl, um, on average, you would feel uncomfortable if the singers were related, you know, the song is not inherently sexual. Um, you know, maybe singing the song is not inherently sexual. It is a showcase of skill by them singing, but you would still feel uncomfortable if, you know, 
um, The Closer I Get to You was being sung by somebody and their mom, you know, or some girl and her dad. So in a similar way, like whining is something that is about, you know, partnership. Um, you know, it's, it is a competitive partner dance in the same way that, you know, bachata and salsa are, but that is the reason why you feel uncomfortable with the concept of, you know, it being associated with family. It's not because it's inherently sexual. It's just because of where the dance originates from. Thank you for that breakdown. Um, it's interesting because I do think that people kind of struggle to struggle to reconcile with that for some That's reason. Fine. And, you know, one thing that gets confused a lot, um, at least from what I can see on, um, you know, social media in particular, is that people think that West Indians expect, you know, other people from other backgrounds to understand and see whining in the same way. Um, you know, there's this idea that that's, the understanding that we have should be universal. And, you know, if this is how we see it, then you guys need to see it that way as well. Um, which at least for me and the people that I know couldn't be further from the truth. What we simply ask is that other people don't tell us what whining is, you know, or what things in our culture are. Um, you know, if we have explicitly stated that, you know, this activity is X, Y, and Z, whining is not sexual, or whatever the case may be, just just leave it at that kind of thing. Because we don't, in turn, you know, do the flip side and tell other cultures, you know, this is what, you know, prostrating means, for example. It's, you know, showing that you're beneath someone, or, or whatever the case may be. It's, we, we don't do that. Um, we don't do the flip side. So it's just a matter of, like, respecting that somebody else, somebody else's culture holds different ideals to you. Carrying on from that topic, um, in your time living here, uh, have you felt fetishized or sexualized because of your West Indian identity? I feel like that is a common thing that we hear is that non-West Indian men seem to view West Indian women in a particular way, uh, in a way that's very not very sexual and much more about... Um, physical gratification rather than actually building a relationship is that true to your experience um not really dating um but in terms of the interactions that i had um i yeah i can definitely attest to to feeling kind of fetishized or sexualized um in comparison to my west african female friends who um, you know, there was a, a degree of objectification, but it was not to the same extent um, as it was for me. It didn't seem, you know, I often felt like if I did entertain this person, um, you know, or if I did, you know, pursue um, whatever conversations were happening, that I was being seen as the fun time, you know. This is somebody to to kick it with and, you know, potentially to, um, you know, take things further or whatever the case may be. But it's not something that they saw as a real investment. Um, you know, I wasn't marriage material or, or wifey or whatever, you know, somebody would want to call it. Um, and I've spoken to other, um, you know, British West Indian women who have had similar experiences where... When we are approached by continental African men, the vibe um, and sometimes, you know, the outright expression is that that is what we are for. Um, 
you know, it's, it's not a matter of us being considered as, uh, you know, responsible, um, you know, quality women, if you will, we are seen as fun. We are seen as hypersexual, um, and we're seen as a good time, not a long time. So one thing I hear consistently from both West Indians in the UK and African Americans in, um, in, in America, duh, um, is that Africans that migrate to each space respectively, sort of when they come, they shun them, they don't respect their culture, they see them as cultureless, um, and they sort of, I guess, retreat from their blackness. Um, which I, I think can be like an unfair summation of, of what's happening. Um, I don't think people are necessarily trying to live into a model minority framework. With with black people in the diaspora, the people that are there in the, the place first are going to be the ones that are radicalized first because they're the ones that have experienced the racialized system of oppression first for the longest time. That's not to say that people that come from other ethnic groups will not become radicalized as their stay continues. I think for that that happens for the most part. Um, also, you have to think about the information these people are having before they come to these spaces, you know, like in the in the 80s, in the 60s, 70s, I, I doubt there would have been like this massive bundle package for African immigrants to read about the people that were already living in the place they were migrating to. Um, so you're only going to have, you know, essentially what the white man's told you, um, the the stereotypical things. The You're only going to get the snapshots. And in any white society, most snapshots of black people are going to be negative. And then on top of that, you have, you know, generations of colonial indoctrination of where people see these places as, you know, as their, you know, if you can get to America, get to Britain and then plant yourself properly. Like you can literally, you know, that that's their way of living. Like, cause the West has destabilized a lot of our nations so much to the point of where people that, you know, even have upward mobility don't see themselves as getting anywhere. You know, the people that came on the Windrush in the forties, they were people of, of status, people that were you know, the, to pay the money to get on the boat in the first place, to have enough money to save up for a ticket, showed that you have a particular level of status. And there would have been people that were thought they would have been able to go to the UK and then build and, you know, have this upward mobility in terms of um, class and economics. But then when you come and you get that rude awakening, your your outlook shifts. So I think we should give grace to newer migrants um, in, in from anywhere when it comes to diasporans, because of course they're not going to know. They're not going to know what's really going on. Um, and I think also like in some situations, things are so bad back home. They, even though people have heard about racism and they heard about how bad it is in 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 in, UK, in the UK, in France, in in America, they would rather trade in the experience of racism, of anti-black racism, than live in their home nations because things are so bad for them. Um, you know, I think there's a big myth that a lot of migrants are rich. I think particularly in, in the American framework, for some of us, you know, our parents sold everything they had, and and also I think the context of middle class back home doesn't equate to the same middle class in the west so like someone can be middle class back home because they can read english well they can write english well they might have a few you know things that they have like you know like like for example if i use my mum for example my mum was lucky enough that uh her dad and her uncle both received scholarships to to study abroad uh, my grand my granddad became an engineer my great uncle became a doctor a medical doctor and my my great uncle moved to france uh, he actually married a French woman and had some children. My mum went with them to France as their au pair. 
my mum's someone that didn't even finish um, secondary school but because of that family connection she was able to go to Europe and experience it for 10 years so she lived over there for 10 years learned French came back to Ghana when she came back to Ghana the situation she found her brother and mother in uh, in terms of them being malnourished in terms of them uh, you know needing dental care all these these kinds of things she saw it as she saw, when she saw that physically she told me that that was what gave her the impetus to know I need to leave so there, so there is the sense of when you go back and you even even having lived abroad and coming back, when you see the level of depravity back home, sometimes it then becomes this thing of this impetus of I need to, I need to get away, I need to go somewhere and do something to 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 put an end to this, right? And there's there's this this disenfranchisement of of things getting better in your home nation. There is this disenfranchisement of things aren't going to get better here. I can see things aren't going to get better here. I need to leave. I need to go. So she sold. All of her, like her clothes, her, um, uh, I think she had a, a, a record player to get her ticket to come. So I think we don't always think about the situations where someone has literally, I mean, even if you look at the things that happen um, in terms of migration to, to Europe through Libya, things like that, people, you know, they have a li- they have, they have little bit, they have a little bit, um, enough to make them middle class in the context of an African nation. But that doesn't mean that they are rich. It means they have enough to get out. They give everything they have and they still put themselves in dire situations to get to these spaces. So I think that just shows the the, the desperate nature of a lot of the, um, a lot of people. Um, so. So, yeah, I th- uh, so that's that's one side. That's what that's what I, what I want to try and push that we give each other grace. So for the most part, it's a misunderstanding and a desire to. To, you know to save yourself essentially to save yourself from this you know because you know africans like suffer as much as um, we we try to push against this um narrative of, of the african the only african being the suffering african there are a lot of people on the continent that are suffering and even we as like anglophone diasporans i don't know what's going on in you know Cote d'Ivoire. i don't know what's going on in cameroon or in places where they don't speak the same language as me so the um the uh you know if you know a volcano could go off in in drc i wouldn't really know much about it unless i seek that information out so i think the actual living the lived experience of these people back home we're not always getting the full picture because we're only hearing bits and bobs from places that speak the same language as us so if i don't speak french if i don't speak spanish i'm not gonna i don't know i'm not gonna know what's going on in angola or in cote d'ivoire or in cameroon or in gambia like i'm not gonna know because i don't speak those languages so i think there is there's also that veil of where we don't see everything we think we know everything but we really don't and we have a we have a snapshot understanding of people because of the few people that we interact with or few people we hear, hear say certain things um on top of that um i think if we look at the 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 history or the geopolitical circumstances that or the geopolitical circumstances that make people move so let's take america for example a big population of that nigerian community in america is Ibo. and the time and if you look at the time period when they came it was you know around the biafran civil war you know, this was essentially a genocide for people of this ethnic group. So for them, coming to a new space like England or America, they're not necessarily going to, they're not coming with the intention of, you know, I'm going to come to aid the black struggle in this space. They're, they haven't been radicalized in that sense. It's very much a fight or flight thing. I have to leave this place. This place wants to kill me. I have to leave. So 
then when they come to these places and they set up their communities, I can't really blame them for being insular. I can't blame them for not really necessarily wanting to, you know, to prov- to provide for anyone but their own. I don't see that as them being, you know, anti-black or, or, or betraying the race in any way. It's, 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 a, it's a very natural human reaction to, to suffering. It's like, okay, cool. This thing has happened to me in, in my home. I now need to leave my home in order to feel safe and to feel that my children are going to be able to prosper without discrimination or without um, yeah, any kind of particular barriers like that. Um, so yeah, so I just, yeah, so I, I want to put that idea out there. And then I think, and now I'm going to ask you a question, Karis. Um, do you think that the ways in which some diasporans um, connect with back home, as in, but connect with the mother, with Africa, the, the 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 mother continent? Do you think it can sometimes be problematic or hollow? Because for me, I'll hear people say that they grew up with this pan-African upbringing. So whether it's an African-American, whether it's a West Indian in, in the UK. Um, and then when I sort of interrogate that, it will be, it will come out in a sense of like, they'll say things like, oh, we had African ornaments in our house. We were always taught that Africa was a, a, a beautiful place and da 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 There isn't necessarily a lot of knowledge what well, from what i've personally seen let me phrase that properly what from what i've personally heard and seen when they describe this pan-african upbringing they've had it's it's much more about the history of africa and then having african ornaments or Af- some some sort of african totems in their household it's not necessarily about the geopolitical and uh so, so socio-political situations of the people living on the ground in modern day africa or even just the the relatively recent history of the liberation that um you know that that's that you know that sprung up from independence going forward from Ghanaian independence going forward um i don't necessarily hear about those kind of things and it's, it's and i think it's important that is the history that 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 is the area that's the history that's the time period where we see this very interconnected black international struggle where you know where you have malcolm x going to this um the, the conference that the african Com- african people's conference um you see Kwame Tor migrate from um, Trinidad to America, and then from America ending up in uh, in Guinea. So that's uh, that's where you see the this these interconnections that maybe we miss. Um, you have you know when Angela when Angela Davis was arrested in America, you had Somali women protesting in in Somalia for her to be released. Um, when Ghana gained independence, Ike and Tina Turner came to perform. When uh, Zambia got independence, they invited Bob Marley to perform. So we sort of sort of see these interconnections of different diasporas. Um, what else can I think of another example? I can't think of another example at the moment. Um, but there are plenty. So I feel like there's like there's maybe a gaps in knowledge in that particular set of histories. Even even things like apartheid, like we see a lot of xenophobia in South Africa towards um, outsiders that are black. But then there isn't necessarily the knowledge of how other nations helped in the apartheid movement. You know, you had Ghana and Nigeria funding a lot of money. You had different chapters of the Black Panthers in America protesting the apartheid regime. The people like living in other nations, um, but that history has sort of, I guess, been lost. And I think that's kind of what adds to the discord amongst different diasporans. Um, so what I'm saying is, when I look at certain things, for, so for, let me let me give a specific example. So when I see... Um, the Hoteps and they're talking about Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. When I see Rastafarianism talking about um, Ethiopia and how Ethiopia is the is the birthplace of all African people and everyone needs to return there. Da, 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 da. Um, when I see um, Oprah Winfrey thinking that she's going to 
when she's going to see Zulu in her uh, in her um, DNA test results. When I see that they use Swahili and Kwanzaa, which is an East African dialect, when the like West Af- when the majority of people that were taken from Africa to to America are going to be of Western Central African descent, people from the Guinea coast, from the Bight of Biafra. So it's like there seems to be a, an attempt to connect. There's definitely an attempt to connect, but in a way that maybe isn't, you know, it's not true to the people that they actually originate from. It's not necessarily true to the to the the current situation of those nations um, in the way they exist now. It's much more about the past and mythologizing to sort of create this idea that the black person hasn't always been helpless, which I understand. I, I completely understand, but I think it can also be problematic in the ways in which we treat certain groups of people based on this idea. So, like when I look at how for example uh, the Eritrean community in um in some a place like LA has seemed to assimilate relatively easily whereas on the east coast you know west african migrants are maybe being more ostracized um when i see i, I remember i watched um Muhammad ali uh, when we were kings this documentary about um the rumble in the jungle and his career in general and you know i see basically someone someone said if you were called an african people would be willing to fight so it's this really kind of it's this difficult thing and I kind of wondered if you could speak to how you sort of see the ways in which people choose pick and choose which spaces to venerate which people to venerate which people to accept which people to reject um based on your experiences um I definitely think that a part of it is to do with aesthetics um you know and the way that um, you know, East Africans are stereotypically perceived to look, um, you know, for example, um, you know, and the way that other um, ethnic groups within Africa, um, you know, outside of um, West Africans who are, you know, deemed to look phenotypically one way, um, you know, I definitely think that that has played a significant role in people having an affinity or more of an affinity for those groups than others um, today. Historically, though, I would say that the bias, um, you know, and the different allegiances that people have had towards leaning towards, um, you know, other nations outside of the, um, you know, West African region, I think it's been um, more political, um, you know, and more strategic. Um, in some cases, um, it's a, a, a legacy of white supremacy. So, um, you know, I, I strongly and have always felt that the obsession with Egypt, um, you know, is a, a legacy of white supremacy. Um, so there are things that historically I feel like have stemmed from, um, you know, political bias and, um, you know, from partnerships that were happening um, in the, the 50s, 60s, um, and then nowadays, I, I definitely do feel like, um, you know, especially in the age of social media, um, you know, as people are, are sharing more images and, you know, things of that nature, there is an aesthetic bias also that is driving people to feel, you know, more aligned with nations outside of uh, the West African region. And I hope like I'm not coming off as I'm like bashing people or anything like that. That's not really what I'm trying to do. Um, it's just always been kind of interesting to me because I feel like when I look at the steps that 
West African nations have taken, like like Ghana, for example, has come out and publicly apologized for their role in the slave trade. Um, there were moments where you know Brazilian repatriates came to Accra. Uh, I know, I think currently there's a lot of Jamaican repatriation, or there has been in in the recent decades. So I feel like you know there is that that outreaching go is is going on, like in terms of politically, but it maybe it doesn't creep down in terms of social awareness or cultural awareness. Um, you know, when we, and even like when we see certain traditions that are very, you know, you can see they're very derived from very specific places. So like, you know, Nine Night Tradition, Anansi is a, a character in folklore, Rice and Peas is very derivative of Wache. So for me, it was, it was always interesting to see that, I guess, a bit of a disconnect. But again, this could all just be me projecting as an outsider. Like I'm always open to the idea of, as an outsider, I just don't know as much as I think I do. No, I... I would agree, um, you know, in terms of partnerships, while I would say that a number of Caribbean nations have had, um, you know, longstanding political partnerships with West African nations, um, I don't think that they have been publicized, promoted, um, you know, or marketed in the same way that um, or I guess embedded in culture in the same way that other nations have. Um, so if that is, uh, if, if that was intentional, I can't say, or if that's just, you know, kind of how the cookies crumbled, but that is definitely something that I would agree with you on. So when we're talking about these, um, diaspora wars, as people like to call them, I think a key term would probably be disrespect. Um, and feelings of disrespect can arise from you know for many reasons for me personally though i'm wondering when we see this tension and this idea of disrespect coming up do you think it's at all partially down to the fact that the older groups in certain spaces um are having trouble reconciling with the changing face of black people and black culture in their respective spaces so as in the people that have you know put their stamp down first and had the majority of influence on what is perceived as black culture in those specific nations. Do you think there is a part of these tensions that comes from the fact of they're now feeling an erasure um, in, you know, in different instances, you know, maybe it's vocab changing, maybe it's a certain group being more prominent in academic spaces, whatever it may be. Um, because, you know, I feel like in England in particular, I don't see much of a melding of culture. I think people speak as if there's a melding of culture, but I personally, I don't see that. I see um, essentially a swapping out, you know. Um, I think obviously there are some staples that are always going to stay. You know, when someone says Wagwan, you know that that's, you know, that's the, that's the Jamaican stamp handprint on black British culture and I don't think that's going away anytime soon but what I am seeing is creeping in of of, of of more West African lingo and things of that nature so people are saying chale which is ga people are saying oya people are saying omo which are both um, Yoruba words you're seeing pigeon creep in there sometimes so like yeah do, do you personally think like part of this feeling of resentment um, is the older communities feeling erased even though the erasure is not necessarily the intention of the new communities? Um, so the first half, I would say that I do feel like um, there's a measure of resentment building um, amongst British West Indians, but I don't feel like it is 
in response to, um, you know, sort of cultural things being swapped out or added to, um, you know, the, the addition of other black cultures that, you know, their lingo being added into, you know, black British culture. I don't think that, um, you know, British West Indians are feeling a way about that per se. I feel like the resentment stems from, um, the negative experiences that British West Indians seem to be having, um, you know, in terms of portrayal and stereotypes um, and opportunities in comparison to British West Africans um, in particular. Um, you know, when I speak to both communities, um, the, the gripes, um, you know, and the resentment seems to be more based on um, you know, education, employment, um, you know, career progress, um, you know, academic success and things of that nature. And it's really interesting to hear this because I feel like, oh, I don't know, um, maybe because I'm just stupid, but I'd always felt like that the idea of disenfranchisement was just a, a universal black thing. Maybe, maybe because the wider society sort of always pushes a very flat blackness towards us. Um, like even and you see that and even things like um, consensus forms is you know the the uniqueness in terms of black identities on on consensus forms are very very um, limited. It's very interesting to hear this disenfranchisement from a uh, specifically West Indian standpoint because I'd even go and I'd even say that like I think for a long time I kind of perceived West Indians as, for lack of a better term having a, a leg up I guess. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily um, I I find. The idea of calling it a leg up. Um, I, I only mean I only mean in terms of being here longer. I, I know, I, I know, and that's part of why you know for me I would I, I don't know what that term is right now in this moment, um, but I would sort of actively try and find um, different language just because these are the little things that will get under. Um, a less calm person's skin in terms of trying to articulate. My bad, my bad. I, I didn't mean to offend. No, 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 you're good. Um, you know, but it's just, it's it's hard to kind of then start to, um, you know, answer a question, articulate yourself or, um, you know, get your point across if in the back of your mind you're thinking like, this person thinks I had head start. Like, you know, where? <laughs> Show me kind of thing. And I, know, and I know you don't think that. No, it's good that you check me on that actually um language is important and it's, it's very important that we're careful how we speak so I, I apologize for that um wholeheartedly um you know i think it's i think it's one of those things like the like the word privilege we use it in ways where maybe it doesn't necessarily fit all the time so what the things i was thinking of are probably more like being here for longer having people being more used to you um being seen i mean particularly for like from a standpoint of in school times being seen as the cool version of a black person um, as opposed to an African being seen as the the version that was open to ridicule or open to more ridicule. But then, you know, that's a very limited view. It doesn't look at, you know, um, the things, the very specific things happen, that happened to West Indian communities when they got here. You know, I'm not thinking about busing or subnormal schools or all these, you know, terrible things, you know, being thrown into bully vans, such laws, you know, banks refusing to lend money and having to start partner systems. And obviously some of these things did affect Africans too that were also here but because West Indians were here in a much bigger number earlier they were the ones that you know that bore the brunt of it 
Um, so I always, see, I, I always try to pay homage and respect to those communities that you know were here first in Britain. Um, so again, I apologize for the language that I used. Um, it didn't reflect my actual understanding. I think there's a very perverse way in, in which uh, the wider society uses different black groups. Um, for like even like the the way that for example like i remember anytime people would ask to see like an african dish like a food dish like a fufu or kenke or any the immediate reaction of most people would be like oh it's disgusting Da-da-da-da, primitive looks horrible like so there was always that feeling of a rejection um or a rejection of our customs rejection of our foods rejection of our whatever whatever um but on the other hand you would see west indian cuisine being attached to this idea of tropical um a tropical getaway and i think we see that a lot in today where you have these places like turtle bay um rum kitchen where they're very they're very open to using west west indian inspired quote-unquote inspired um dishes without necessarily giving homage to the west indian people that create these dishes or even the conditions that create the dishes like i remember Jamie Oliver was talking about um, making this jerk paste and people were going angry at him and he was sort of saying, oh, it's just food. It's not racist to just make food. But when you look at the history of jerk chicken in particular, the reason that that comes about, the whole jerk panic um, invention comes about because it's slaves trying to hide the fact that they've got a prime piece of meat from their master. They have to cover it. They have to cover the chicken so that the smoke wouldn't get out and alert the masters that they had a decent sized chicken. So even within something that would seem innocuous, like food, there are these massive cultural ramifications and the fact that people don't um, uh, look into the perverse ways in which we, well, in which the wider society commodifies black cultures and then pits black cultures against each other. Like we're just going to, like I said, we're just going to spiral into this, into this infighting that, that sort of harms our wider issues. Yeah. And that's part where the, um, I think a lot of the issues stem from the time that British West Indian people have been in the UK and what they've experienced, um, you know, in terms of uh, the Windrush generation, um, all the the racial struggles that they have had to overcome, um, the civil struggles, you know, that they have fought. I think it's similar to African-Americans in the sense that to then see another black group come and um, perceived have certain levels of success and attainment while still holding, um, you know, certain stereotypes about British West Indians, it makes people feel a way. Um, Whether those, you know, perceived ideas of what the other group, you know, feels is actually true or not, it you know, doesn't matter if that is what the original group sees happening or what they, they think they see happening, that resentment, you know, is inevitable and it's only going to build. I think it's also very important that people realize things aren't always what they seem. Um, moments and statistics can make things seem a lot different than what they are. Uh, for example, like, you know, um, Barack Obama being inaugurated into the presidency that doesn't reflect uh, the conditions of black America as a whole, but it's used often as a yardstick for that experience, right? It's like the, a black man has been able to become the president. Therefore, racial inequality must be lesser than it was in in the past. 
and you know people were even using phrases like post-racial society and da, 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 and like it's you know it's very it's this very crass thing that i think the wider society um does to sort of make to diminish things and i think similarly the ways in which for example west african academic attainment i often see it being used to sort of dispel this notion of of racial institutional racism in terms of the attainment of uh Com- like the, comparing the attainments of different black groups and i feel like they only ever use um west african attainment uh and the fact that that some west africans are doing quite well in academic spaces to suggest that any black people that aren't doing well in academic spaces or in just in school in general it, it must be some sort of cultural reason and i feel like it's so perverse because we know that's not to be the case. We know there are specific barriers and specific things that have happened to these communities for generations that have stunted their, um, you know, st- stunted these things and these practices continue to this day. So I think it's very important that we don't get caught up in seeing certain things and taking it as a reflection of how um, communities are doing. Um, and it's interesting because they only ever mention West African attainment in that circumstance. They never mention it anywhere. The only time they mention it is when they want to prove that racism doesn't exist um, and therefore, you know, um, African-Americans, West Indians in, in, in America and Britain, respectively, must just have cultural issues that mean they don't do well in school. And on, and also, they'll use it when they're trying to dispel white privilege. So um, when the, they'll talk about, our oh, working class white boys are getting left behind. So then that's when they'll use, oh, yeah, West Africans are doing well in school. It's a very perverse thing that they're doing in terms of pushing particular narratives about particular people. Because, you know, when uh, when... Donald Trump talks about shithole nations or shithole countries. I forget exactly his phrase. When we see David Cameron and his lot laughing at how corrupt Nigeria is as a government, you know, we can tell that they they don't they don't actually um, revere you know West Africans in any way, shape, or form. They don't view them in any higher regard than they would any other black person. But they, they can strategically use these narratives to you know breed even more infighting and disenfranchise black people to in even further extent than we already are and i think it's important that we realize that you know just because you see certain things like people doing well in school doesn't mean that the community is prosperous as a whole bloomberg did a report recently and it showed the average inheritance for a black british african family is one pound and the average inheritance for a, a black british west indian family uh, was around 700 and something pounds um, I don't know how they get all these stats and do all these things but it's very clear that the economic situations we're in you know they're not you know they're not great like with um so I feel like it's important that we sort of notice that when we see certain things that suggest otherwise take it with a grain of salt not to diminish the accomplishments of our people but at the same time, we just have to be, we have to really think about the situation we're in as communities within the diaspora, um, the real situation and how, it, what, and how the, and the reflection of that reality versus what we hope and wish it would be. I think particularly with like with immigrants, because of the sacrifices that we um, our parents made to come to these to these places, there's this, this concerted effort to sort of hide our L's, um, to hide the fact where to hide where we're lacking. And I think that contributes to this um, idea that we're doing a lot better than we actually are. And it's not the case. I think it's also very, very important to highlight the difference between specificity and isolation. But there are specific issues in each community, but that doesn't mean they're isolated. Um, for example, something like Windrush, it was very much specific West Indian issue. But it doesn't mean it's isolated the West Indian community. 
the Home Office is coming after Africans the same way. So I feel like it's important that we realise that, you know, when when one community is hurting, we're all hurting. It's not a thing of where they're just going to go after them and not us. That's not how it works. It's never been how it works and it's never going to be how it works. And I think, you know, this is highlighted when when they catch you doing something and the way they'll, you know, vilify you and push a specific part of your identity to the forefront. So, like, when Jesse Smollett got caught up in his little situation and the two people that are, the two, his two accomplices that were also involved in the situation, they went from being American citizens to being Nigerian. The media f- emphasized they're Nigerian, they're Nigerian, they're Nigerian. Everyone was focusing on them being Nigerian. These times, these are American citizens. They were born and raised in America. So, the the media the same way they'll use you um as a yardstick for other communities to say other communities aren't doing as well they'll drag you back down and and let you know that you're still an n-word to them if you if you do something else so i think it's very important that we don't let ourselves be used as these props for the white man's game yeah and i think that was you know um an intentional thing um you know, one thing that I, I do try to stress when I have conversations um, about, say, you know, British West Indians versus British West Africans, African-Americans versus, you know, new, um, you know, continental African immigrants to the United States is that this is absolutely, um, you know, something that is by design, um, you know, especially, for example, if you look at the United States, um, you know, with the the recent or the more recent immigrants from Africa and the resentment that African-Americans have been taught to have towards these groups because it's like, you know, they have, quote unquote, more culture than you or, um, you know, they're different, they're better, they're more educated, they're this, they're that. You know, that is absolutely something that is um, socialized, it's taught, it's encouraged, it's it's fostered throughout almost every level of society, including education and employment. So, you know, I, I definitely, you know, do agree and 100% understand where you're coming from, where your father is coming from as far as, um, you know, this kind of being, I'm trying to see what the word is. Um, you know, kind of seeping in from all levels of society, um, you know, and kind of every corner of your experience when you are, um, you know, among one of those black groups in a, a white dominant country, you know, they will find ways to make sure that you guys are at odds. If that's making the original black group feel like they are more superior, if that's making the new black group feel like they're more superior, um, you know, whatever it takes, there's always going to be some organized and well-designed tension. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess I'm kind of worried about where we go from here because me personally, I'm like, a, I'm an advocate of holding on to Pan-African ideals. Uh, I believe they do serve us um, in a wider sense. Um, but I think not everyone does think like that. I think people are kind of, have turned to seeing Pan-African ideals as erasive. And to me, I don't know. It's It's... I think it's a strange take. But it's not erasive if you are effectively, you know, banding together in the way that, you know, earlier groups did, while also knowing that this group, you know, this other group holds beliefs and they perpetuate systems that are also, you know, keeping you under their thumb, you know, or holding you back or whatever. I don't think it has to be that way i don't think it is that way 
for the most part. Like when I think of my experiences as a black Brit, you know, I have, you know, it's 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 been a varied experience. I've been able to enjoy West Indian cultures, enjoy African-American cultures, take them in uh, to an extent. Um, and I feel as though, well, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe my experience isn't the typical experience, but, you know, I've just always appreciated everyone for being what they are. I've never felt the need to encroach. I've never felt the need to push mine on anyone except for the the their wanting to know and them wanting to know. Um but I guess, you know, these conversations they, they seem to always get heated. Um but I don't think that I don't think they're I don't think these conversations in and of themselves cause agitation. I think they get heated because the people having them are having them in bad faith. But you can have like you can have this convo and it can be, you know, it doesn't have to be heated. I don't think that they have to be um, you know, sort of heated discussions by any means, but I think that um in any kind of progressive um healing discourse between groups, there's gonna have to be um hard conversations and um you know a measure of accountability and unfortunately accountability is uncomfortable um you know uncom- accountability makes people um you know to a certain degree hot around the collar and it's unfortunate but it is a necessary step i think that is going to ensure that those conversations continue um, you know, because I think that to a certain degree, things like that have been attempted in the past. You know, I see sometimes people attempting those kinds of discussions, um, you know, on social media, on other podcasts, and it reaches a point in the conversation where things funnel towards action and towards admission. And that's when things go left because all of a sudden, you know, one party is not willing to, you know, budge. The other party is, you know, demanding, um, you know, a certain level of, um, you know, understanding that the other one isn't willing to provide. And I think that for um, Black people is where we get stuck. Um, You know, we have, you know, an abundance of compassion and empathy for each other enough to sit down. But I think, it's a matter of being willing to stay seated when the conversation gets hot, if that makes sense. Okay, so continuing with this, I guess the idea of disrespect, maybe we could look at language, um, specifically terms for different people. So as someone of West Indian descent, how do you feel about particular terms in other languages to describe people of your descent? So I think I guess I'm kind of asking, do you personally take words like jamo or kata um, do you take them as slurs? Do you believe that they're um, innately offensive? Um, I I don't feel like they are um, slurs in origin, um, but I do feel like they are slurs now. Um, and I don't know if I'm always the best person to ask about these things just because I see language very differently, um, you know, perhaps from the average person. I don't really care where a word comes from or what the origin is. I feel that language is flexible and that it evolves over time. And if in 2020 it is being used as a slur, it is a slur. Um, 
you know, if in 150 years time, it means something completely different, then it means something completely different. But at this point in time, you know, and for the last few decades, it has been used in a very derogatory way, um, you know, and it's not something that is received very well by, um, you know, the, the diaspora. So I personally, um, I, I, I don't respond well to either. Um, you know, whenever I've heard either, I ask people, you know, please don't call me that, you know, could you not use that? And, you know, sometimes it goes over well, sometimes it doesn't. But for me personally, um, you know, and for the West Indians that I know, the, the African-Americans that I know, those aren't words that we take too kindly to. So, yeah. It's interesting because um, I feel like, I'm in sort of two minds about it. I feel like because we haven't had as much of a intimate, integrated relationship as we could or should have had over the um, last you know, 200, 400 years, whatever, um, we we kind of already believe or have this perception that other black groups dislike other black groups. So whenever we hear that a black group has a name or, or uh, that used to refer to a particular group, it's automatically taken as disrespect. Um, and I kind of I I sometimes push against that idea just because our languages are usually you know quite metaphorical, um, and I think we often come up with words based on how we first interact with a particular group. Um, you know, for, um, and, and I think also because of our oral histories, it's sometimes difficult to actually pin down the specific and actual origin of a word. Sometimes the word might even have two origins and they just, they, you know, they co they coexisted, they um, happened at the same time. Uh, so for example, when I think about um, my context, my people, the the Ga people, the Gadambe people, um, we migrated to what is now Accra about a thousand years ago, um, and you know we've had, uh, you know, wars with different ethnic groups in what is now modern day Ghana over the over the over that time period, um, and, and we've you know come into we've come into contact with the Ashantis at, at particular times, and the the Tree word, which is the Ashanti language, the Tree word for Ga people is Unkranfo, um, which basically translates to ant people. Um and the you know, the the origin of that word is is, you know, there is some people that say it's because Accra is full of ant hills. So it's that's that's the reference they had for Ga people, the people that lived in a place where there were a lot of ant hills. But there's another story where it's um uh, an enemy general referred to us as that because we attacked like ants. So you don't really know if the origin of the word is actually insulting or negative. Um, so, I, yeah, I just think, you know, it's, it's different in terms of power dynamics and situations. So, for example, with the N-word, I can say I can say that's undoubtedly a slur because of the way it's constructed and the power dynamics that were around when it was constructed. Whereas with words that kind of refer to other black groups, I feel like sometimes we're just using, we're just using different things to refer to each other as that's because those are our reference points for each other. Um, I think the Ashanti word for Jamaicans essentially translates to sugarcane people. Um, uh, the Ashanti word for Yoruba people translates to like pepper people. Um, and it's interesting because um, Alutafwa, which is the, the Ashanti word for or the, the tree word for Yorubas and is now used to describe um, Nigerians. I think the Ga word for Yorubas is Anago. 
and but again that's also used to describe nigerians in general and i feel like that's just like that's how we refer to people like the the i think there was a time period where the nigerians came to ghana and traded in pepper and i think alata is the yoruba word for pepper so the story could be that ghanaians heard that word repeatedly repeatedly whenever these people were around and therefore associated them with it and that's how the word became what it is and it's interesting because i've seen quite a few british nigerians um see that word as a slur but interestingly when the roles are flipped and you have west indians or african americans um talk to diaspora diaspora nigerians in particular and say that they they view jamo or akata as as slurs there is this thing of no it's not a slur it's just that that's just the word we use to describe you um so it's interesting to see when people sort of are willing to see words as just circumstantial and referential versus being a slur so i think tone and incident matters a lot if the only time you're using this word is in a negative connotation when you're describing these people it's essentially taken on the characteristics of a slur um but i agree with you i don't think they are slurs in and of themselves and you know language is fluid and it can change and adapt uh, if we switch gears now i think you know one of the biggest things in recent times that sort of kicked off this whole diaspora conversation uh is i think there's a newer dynamic between african-americans and black brits um i feel like black brits are a bit more visible now to african-americans and we've our existence has kind of confused a lot of people um and i think in one particular moment this was was exemplified was uh, when samuel jackson was talking about um get out and talking about how he would have wanted to see an african-american actor take on that role um and you know i think his gripes were legitimate in a sense to a degree but the way he framed it was ridiculous. Like the things he says, we said they've been interracial breeding in, in London for ages, in England for ages, and everyone's mixed. I don't know which England he's talking about. We are 3% of the population. There are barely any of us here. Um, so so that whole, his whole framing of the idea of like, there's so much racial unity or a racial utopia in, in England um, compared to America. I, I don't know where this idea comes from. Again, I think it's just a matter of fact because of American hegemony, their issues and their situations are um, are global. Um, ours are not, uh, and that's you know that's just the, that's the dynamics of the world. But for him to sort of project an idea of what Britain is, and therefore suggest that Daniel couldn't perform in that role, uh, especially because there's always this stereotype of like, oh, um, racism in the UK is low key, it's insidious, it's back it's backhanded i don't believe so i think racism here is very blatant but people always use that kind of that, that narrative and in the situation in get out the movie it's very much a situation of this very low-key insidious um behind behind the back racism so then if that's the idea that americans have of black brits or or black brits experience of racism in the uk then surely his experience would translate to playing the role in get out so yeah i guess what do you kind of think about the whole situation like do you think that black brits are able to play black americans like do you think like for, for me i kind of feel like hollywood puts us into a very very narrow corridor in terms of representation so it's different i don't know i struggle with this I, I i do believe there is such a thing as artistic license but at the same time i do think there should be some form of uh we make sure that these people are being represented properly um you know if i'm casting because the way i see it if if they because i think for the longest time we've just kind of been used to african-americans playing everyone whether it's west indians whether it's west africans whether it's south africans like we've just been used to that um but i feel as though going forward we should push for more accurate representation in movie roles um 
I'm not sure how that's going to manifest. And I think it's also unfair on people from less uh, from less publicized. Like Hollywood is the mecca of acting. Um, so if you're, you know, a continental African actor and you want to get on, or if you're a black British actor and you want to get on, you kind of have to go to Hollywood. There is no other space for you. There is a global market. Um, like we constantly see white Brits play white Americans all the time. But I think sometimes with with um with black roles it's it's a bit more it's a bit more nasty because like um for example with the Nina Simone fiasco like the fact that they were willing to really just chop and change anyone and put them in that role like put Zoe Saldana in that makeup with prosthetics it's especially with like when Nina's physical appearance played so much into her life and her choices and her story like it is very crazy to me to see that um that level of or the belief that there's a level of interchangeability um, that you know goes beyond, goes far beyond just an accent. Um, in principle, I feel like there is no um, need for any lines to be drawn. Um, you know, I feel like as long as the person is, um, you know, doing the role well, um, you know, or or the art well. I feel like that should be enough. That is in principle in a perfect world, I guess. In reality, I base all of this on numbers um, in terms of the opportunities that are available. So, you know, you uh, mentioned um, there's actually a a number of British actors who are having huge success in the United States. Um, you know, white people included. And I think that is the point for me exactly. White people, there is no shortage of roles for white people. Um, you know, the the roles for white characters, male and female, there is an abundance of them. Um, and thousands more are made every single day. So there's never going to be any, um, you know, crying over, um, you know, the likes of Benedict Cumberbatch taking Um, you know, a white man's role or a white American man's role, because there's 30 more if, you know, that actor just speaks to his agent. Whereas for Black people, for African Americans in particular, there's only so many roles that are created for them. Um, There are a number of roles that are often created where race is not specified, um, you know, and that's a different story altogether. But there's very there's there's a limited pool of African American roles. And so once I feel you have um, a situation where the number of opportunities are limited, priority should be given to the people who those roles actually reflect. Um, You know, all the, the, the roles that, or the opportunities that I see for other marginalized groups as well, it's the same story, you know, so for, um, you know, Latino actors, for um, disabled actors, for trans actors. It's the number of roles that are actually available that's really heightening this, um, this unfairness. Um, you know, if you, if you call it that or if you want to see it as that. Um, and it's the insult sometimes of then hiring someone to do the job who can't execute it in the way that someone who is authentically that person or that ethnicity, um, you know, or part of that group 
who could tell that story and, you know, articulate certain things more sensitively, accurately, um, you know, the list goes on. Um, you know, it's quite interesting to look at Hollywood with this like scarcity um, mindset, because I feel like for me, when I think of scarcity, I've always thought of the British market. You know, we get kiddothood, we get top boy, uh, or we get something like Lufa, where the main character is black, but they don't deal with blackness in any way, shape or form, or there are no other supporting black characters in the show um you know in times past we had you know representation in terms of like you know desmond's the crouches the real mccoy like we, we had shows where you know black people black british people were showcased now we don't really have that so when i think of scarcity like proper scarcity i think of the uk because everything we make over here is you know some sort of victorian um period piece or it's like um a fantasy world where it's based on some sort of British war so again black people are still erased within even like fantasy so it's interesting to me because like growing up black Hollywood was popping you know menace society um paid in full um you know the Cosby show like there was so much representation of black American people that I the idea of scarcity in terms of roles and opportunities it never crossed my mind um even um you know today we see a lot the bbc kind of you know just basically instead of commissioning a black british show they'll buy an american show like atlanta like um insecure and put it on the bbc or put it on iplayer and we don't really get you know those um you know the opportunities doesn't really come for black brits like the only time you'll see black brits on tv is if they're in an american show which you know it kind of makes us even more invisible because fair enough we're getting hired in these american productions but we're not getting to be ourselves um but I guess one of the things that I sort of thought when I initially saw the gripes of African-Americans towards black Brits in American um, films playing Americans was, um, you know, was this idea of oh, that things are being taken from them. And I was thinking, you know, there's only a few guys, really. When I th- I'm thinking of uh, Damson Idris, John Boyega, Daniel Kaluuya, um, Jatel Ojimpour, um uh, David Ayoalo, like Ayoale, I think. Sorry. Um, so, like for me, I was kind of like there are only a few guys, so mm-hmm. I didn't get the the intensity of the gripe. Do you know, there's a, a thread that I'm going to see if I can find and send it to you of black British actors who no one knows are British. That might um, that might be a part of it too. That I'm not aware of the people who are actually and, British. Yeah, and I think that is you know to a certain degree because um, I wasn't aware of some of these people either. And going through the list, I was just like, hold on, they have always played an American. Um, you know, I thought this person was from you know L.A. or or wherever. Um, so I definitely think that there's more in terms of numbers that um, Black British people have not been aware of until. So Lately. we're only we're only seeing the hyper visible ones like Daniel. The hyper visible ones, number one, and number two, we live in an era of um, more people calling things out. I think, you know, you know, maybe in the '90s and beforehand, people were kind of just willing to lump things, um, you know, and just grind harder, and you know, it was more sensitive and taboo to be interviewed about you know your career, and then suddenly bring this slightly controversial politicized take to things as to why you're not getting roles whereas now everything is fair game you know so i feel like that interview in particular 
um, that Samuel Jackson had, I don't think that he would have had that same kind of interview in, say, the early 90s. Um, I don't think he would have um, expressed what he expressed in the same way, with the same confidence, with in the way that he did in that interview, what, two years ago? Um, it will, yeah, when did Gail come? Yeah, two or three years. Um, he's a very uh, forward person, you know, so he may have um, expressed similar sentiments um, in a more tactful way or in a more roundabout way, talking about the industry and, um, you know, U.S. versus British talent. Um, but to specifically hone in on Black British actors and to name call or name drop, I should say, I feel like that is something that would be happening more so in, you know, this era than than in previous times. I think it's definitely like a, a, an interesting thing to think about because as much as there is definitely um, uh, Brits are being leveraged unfairly against the African-American co-workers in, in Hollywood, at the same time, the Brits aren't necessarily benefiting as much as they could because because um, they're still having to not be themselves they're um, playing Americans they're not getting to use their own accents they're, so again and, then, and they're also telling the stories of African Americans so I think again that kind of creates, creates a situation where we're involved in our own erasure because you know we're not um, and again it's not necessarily our fault because we don't necessarily have the tools to create um, similar productions about Black British history and experiences. I can guarantee that you know when we think back at Daniel Kaluuya playing um, Fred Hampton in the future, the big takeaway is going to be that Fred Hampton's story was told. Not necessarily that Daniel Kaluuya was a Black Brit. So like we're having this conversation in the here and now, but I don't necessarily think that over the standing and testing of time, Kaluuya's Black British identity will have as much of an impact or importance in the way that film is perceived going forward. Um, so it's interesting because like, there is clearly this unfair thing that's happening, but even the people that are benefiting from that situation, or quote unquote benefiting, they're not getting like the, a full benefit. Fine, they might get the recognition back here in Britain and they're coming back and they're making their production, making their own productions and, um, you know, but even like, you know, and that's and that's the kind of, that's the kind of pay it forward thing I see, you know, you see John Boyega, you see Stephen McQueen and they're making these things and they're hiring black people from all over the gaff they're hiring black brits they're black, hiring african-americans so there is a pay it forward thing happening but when we talk about the actual what the brits are gaining what they're gaining exposure in this present moment but in terms of the black british story it's i guess becoming even less irrelevant because they're playing americans <laughs> i guess the next part of diaspora tension we could go into is um the way people are credited for their influences um this is something that you actually brought to my attention. Like, um, cause I remember when I was younger, whenever someone would show me something West Indian that I knew had, uh, like a West African origin, I would point it out. So, you know, when I'm hearing things about Naim Nai or, um, uh, Anansi and I'm like, Oh, you know, that's, um, these are things that, you know, um, historically came from the region that is now, uh, Ghana. Um, not because I was trying to be like, yo, we own this shit. Bec it was literally a thing of where I'm like, yo, 
we're cousins. See, look, we we're cousins. Like cause I think bec- I think because there was always that estrangement, or th- I always noticed the estrangement between West Africans and West Indians, even though I wasn't necessarily um, like because I've talked about feeling estranged personally from Black British cultures and experiences, but when I was within those spheres, I did always kind of feel like there. W- I could always see the estrangement, um, and it was always very easy to sort of see which was more accepted or venerated or just like you know which which was like held up more in specific situations um so like when so for me whenever i did that it was like yo we're cousins see look so we have these reference points where we can show a shared history like these display a shared history they show a familial bond they show um yeah they show they show that we are one people um essentially yeah but you you had a different take on it um do you want to go into that Um, Yeah, I think it's more about um, the consistency of, um, you know, these things being brought up um, and when they are being brought up um, and also when they're being brought up in comparison to when we're being denied. Um, I think that for Caribbean people, at least, um, as well as for some groups, maybe of African-Americans, um, you know, Black Latin Americans, there's an obvious connection to Africa that we have and that we are, you know, proud of. You know, we we celebrate coming from, you know, this heritage, um, you know, and having this background. But at the same time, we have forged for ourselves very distinct cultures off the back of that heritage. Um, you know, I, I can speak to, um, you know, Jamaican culture having come from that background, you know, we have created a very, uh, unique history for ourselves that is, um, you know, obviously very strongly linked to, you know, various ethnic groups in Africa, um, but also a number of other ethnic groups outside of Africa, um, And so to then have this constant reminder of every positive thing that we do, you know, or that we're proud of, that we are known for, um, you know, being constantly linked back to Africa is somewhat grating because it's like, no, we made this, we took that, you know, because it was what we had left, um, you know, and we've made it this thing that we are known for. Um, and I think, you know, I do understand the, um, the sentiment that you carry when you mention those things. Um, and I do think that the average person in the diaspora would understand, you know, why it's being brought up, that it's not necessarily this dismissive, oh, well, you know, you, you only feel that way or you only have that or whatever, because it's African, but it's the timing, I think, of certain things when it's brought up. Um, and it's also, you know, how things are being brought up in comparison to how we're usually discussed. There are groups who, um, the diaspora perceives, you know, continental Africans who don't accept us, who don't, um, seem to want us affiliated with Africa, um, you know, with being of West African descent when we do something that's wrong or when we do something that's to them perceived as wrong, um, you know, when our 
when negative stereotypes about us are being fulfilled, um, you know, we're not African, you know, we're, we're Jamos, we're, we're this, we're that. But as soon as there's something that there is to be proud of, it's, you know, oh, well, of course, cause you know, you're African and it's like, mm, no, yes, but no, <laughs> you know, I it's that, that constant reminder, um, when we've had reminders to the contrary, that's the most insulting. I think it's really good that you kind of highlighted the other side of it for me, um, partly so I could check myself going forward, but also like, because um, I, ha- I kind of had a similar situation happen to me relatively recently. So my, uh, on my father's side, I'm, I'm Ga. Um, the Ga people migrated from Yorubaland to what is now modern day Accra about a thousand years ago, give or take. Uh, and sometimes that's kind of used to delegitimize our Ghanaianness by some other groups, which is ironic because Ghana didn't exist until 1957. So Ghanaians didn't exist until 1957. Recently, I did have, I've had a few Yoruba people essentially come up to me and tell me, oh, you know, you're Yoruba. When I when I mentioned that my, my Ghana heritage to them and I'm like, no, um, you know, we traveled from there a thousand years ago. We're very distinct. We don't call ourselves Yoruba. Um, you know, there might be some linguistic similarities obviously, but even then, if you speak Ghana you're a person, they're not going to get what you're saying. So yes, there is that historical connection, but in terms of what we are now and who we are now, you can't just say, oh, I'm Yoruba. And I, I was kind of incensed. I was kind of annoyed at that because it happened to me twice on two separate occasions. And I was like, oh, rah. Like, and, and when you told me how, you, how you'd experienced what I was doing to West Indians from that lens, from that perspective, I was like, oh, Maybe I've been a bit of a dickhead here. <laughs> maybe I've been, you know, maybe this hasn't been the um, the pleasant experience I've thought it was um, <laughs> and basically just projected my own sensibilities and my ideas on, on how someone's going to experience, how someone's going to take what I've said. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting to hear it from another side. Um, and it's going to make me sort of like think more about what I do and say going forward. I think one of the ways that um, I compared it was if some sprinters had a, a kid that they gave up for adoption you know this child is now being raised on the other side of the world and they develop a love for sprinting and you know they're putting in the hours they're training around the clock they're you know competing on a national level international level um you know only for their birth parents to find them and say well you got that from us it's like hmm, okay but no, because I've put in the work, I've done the training, I've created this, um, you know, this brand for myself, I've, you know, um, had the correct diet, I've done this, all these things that you have done independently of your origins, only to constantly have your origins touted as the only source of where this success or where this positivity is coming from. It's like, uh, Okay. But yeah, what else can we touch on? I think we've we've touched from we've touched on a lot, haven't we? Um uh, is there anything that you think we've missed? Not really. I think um you know, the things that I wanted to kind of touch on as far as um the origins of kind of original group resentment. Um, you know, you we covered off um you know, or at least got a, a start as far as the conversation. So, um, 
Those are the only things that I can think of for now. How do you think it went? Do you think it was a decent conversation? Yeah, I think that there are going to be some takeaways um, that start, hopefully, uh, you know, really interesting conversations off the back of it. Um, you know, I think that it's going to encourage people not just to, as you've done, share experiences honestly, but also to start work honestly, you know, start repairing things honestly between groups um, and kind of assuming that all of this riff and discord is exclusively emotions and stereotype based, um, you know, and really begin to see it for in kind of a, like a macro level the the wider picture seeing the bigger things at play um you know seeing the the bigger influences um so we can stop kind of picking at each other and start picking at the the big fish yeah i think that's the kind of the biggest takeaway i want everyone to have um i'm not at all suggesting that people should be docile and accept people disrespecting their culture and their people for the sake of kumbaya that's not why i'm promoting I'm more promoting the idea that when we come together and when we're in these spaces together, we're more about listening and learning and sharing. Um, knowing that, you know, as a diasporan, sometimes we aren't actually the best, represent best representations of our cultures. And I think maybe if we stop standing up as if we are or believing that we are, like for me personally, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Ghanaian, I'm a, I'm a Ghana, but I've lived most of my life in the UK. Um, I'm not going to be able to give you as much of a detailed description of, of Ghana history and even Ghanaian history as someone that's, you know, lived there. Uh, I'm not going to be able to give you that accurate representation, even though I feel it in my soul and in my spirit and in my heart. You know, th there are sensibilities that I have that are very much been created by where I grew up, which is the UK. So I feel like we just have to also bear that in mind that, that sometimes we speak on these people as if we know them, but we only know their representatives in, in the nation that we're living in. We don't have this wider understanding of of them uh, in a platonic sense so just yeah i feel like we should pay attention and be careful because you know our ability to hurt each other to disenfranchise each other is is real um you know we shouldn't take it lightly especially because identity is not this fixed thing like we create new beings all the time you know you could be a nigerian living in london and you marry a jamaican you could be a Ghanaian living in london and you marry someone from uganda you could be you know an african-american and then you marry a haitian whatever mix it is like we create new beings all the time. And if we want these kids to have, you know, strong senses of self, not not to feel though, oh, one side dis disapproves of the other side or one side thinks it's better than the other side or to even internalize the idea that one side is better or to have these sort of weird complexes, you know, we should really respect each other and respect, respect each other's cultures beyond the face value level. Like we should really deeply understand and respect each other um, for the sake of the situations that we put ourselves in a lot of the time. Um, and I really hope this conversation hasn't come off as me pointing the finger at anyone or blaming certain people. I think we need to give each other a lot more grace. Um, I think a lot of times in one way or another, we're running away from our blackness. Uh, you know, whatever blackness is, <laughs> there's this, you know, very nebulous concept. But I feel like it's unfair to single people out as, you know, doing it more than anyone else. I think we all understand the consequences of what it means to be racialized as black. And we all run away from it um, in some way, shape or form. Um, so I just think when we see that we should give each other more grace because we, we all understand where we all, we all understand where that fight or flight reaction is coming from or, or at least we should uh, but yeah 
I want to thank Karis a lot for coming on. Thanks a lot. No, thank you. And I will see you again in um, my next episode. Mm-hmm.